chapter 8, we will consider verses 5 through 11. Please hear the word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we, grant, we ask that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and ears, that you would help us, O oh Lord, in the proclamation of your word, in the hearing of your word, Lord, in the believing and obeying of your word, O oh God. We need your help, and we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. J. Gresham Machen, uh, 100 years ago, wrote a little book called Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. And I recall when I first read that book some years ago thinking it should have been titled Christianity or Liberalism. And the reason why I say that is really Machen's design in that book was to contrast what he saw as two distinct religions. So it was not Christianity and then also liberalism, but rather it was a disjunction, either Christianity or liberalism. And in writing about Christianity or liberalism, Machen hoped to show the differences between them by way of contrast. And then once people could see the difference between the two religions, he hoped that they would see the excellency of Christianity over against liberalism. Now, I bring that up because my sermon, which I have titled Flesh and Spirit, might be better called Flesh or Spirit. I only realized that, though, towards the end of the week, and it was too late to change the sign, so there we are. But the reason why it should be titled Flesh or Spirit is that in this passage, the flesh and the spirit are contrasted in order to make clear not only the differences between them, but the comfort for those who are in the spirit as opposed to in the flesh. Now you may remember back in verse 1 of chapter 8, the apostle said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, he's offering there a promise. He's giving there a declaration. There is no condemnation. There is no hell, no damnation, no wrath from God for those who have two qualities about them, who are in Christ Jesus and who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
In these verses here, then the apostle, by means of a contrast, wants to show the difference between the flesh and the spirit and provide comfort to you who are indeed in the spirit. We're going to look at this in two parts. We'll look first of all at the contrast, which is in verses 5 through 8. Contrast 5 through 8. And then the comfort in verses 9 through 11. Looking first at the contrast, we see that there are really two kinds of men. We've seen this several times in this epistle, that Paul divides the world up into two basic classes, and he is doing a similar thing here. These are those who are classified according to the condition in which they exist. I'll explain that more in a moment. They are those who are according to the flesh or those who are according to the spirit. Now, our translation, the New King James here, translates it as those living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. But it really is a verb of being, those who are, those who exist according to. Now, the difference is slight, but it is that living, most recently in this epistle, referred to someone's manner of life, their behavior. Right? Walking in the Spirit refers to one's manner of life. And living, oftentimes in Paul's writing, refers to that. To how you live means how you behave yourself. Whereas the point here in verse 5 is actually a condition, a state of existence. Not necessarily, primarily, a manner of behaving. This is kind of a small point, but we should observe that being, right, those who are versus those who live, is really a more fundamental category. It's really more basic. And, and maybe the best way that I can illustrate this is to say that both living and dead men exist, right? You don't cease to exist when you die. You still are. You just are in a different state. You are in a different type of existence, but you still are. And so the apostle is getting really at the the most basic categorization of mankind. They exist either according to the flesh or they exist according to the spirit. These are two fundamental realities with no categories, by the way, in between them. So the contrast, as I said, is at the most basic level of existence. Um, those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit differ not simply by their behavior, but rather at the very core of their being. Now, the term flesh in this instance refers to the condition or state of fallen man. Man who is a sinner and he is apart from or without the gracious work of God the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be the flesh. It refers to man in what we have talked about before as the state of sin. Remember, man was created in a state of innocence or a state of nature in which he was without sin, but then he sinned and plunged the human race into sin, and now man lives in what is called the state of sin. Well, this is followed by those who are in the spirit. Those who are in the spirit are those who are in the state of grace. That is to say, they have received the grace of God, the forgiveness of their sins. They have faith in Jesus Christ. And they are under the rule and reign of God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, synonyms for these two terms would be things like unbeliever and believer, condemned and justified, wicked and righteous, non-Christian and Christian. To be according to the flesh is antithetical to being according to the spirit. Those who are according to the flesh quite naturally have their minds set on the things of the flesh. We see that in verse 5. Whereas those who are according to the Spirit, quite naturally or quite logically, have their minds set on the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, rather. Now, the things of the flesh refer to those things which please the flesh, those things which are after sin, that is, the sinful nature. It is the appetites and desires of sin. On the other hand, the things of the Spirit are those things that are pleasing to the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The verb that is here translated as set their minds in verse 5 refers to the basic attitude or, or determination or direction of all the faculties and powers of a man's soul. So that means his thinking, right? His desiring or willing, and even his feeling, or we could say his, his mind and his will and his emotions. All of this refers to the setting of his mind. In, uh, some of you will know this. In 1987, uh, George Harrison released a song, Got My Mind Set On You. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. You might not know, however, that song was actually a cover of a song released in 1962 by James Ray. Now, James Ray version was called I've Got My Mind Set On You. And so George Harrison, actually, it was a number one hit in the United States, but it was a cover song. Anyways, if you know the song, you know that it's written from the point of view of a man who is uh, pursuing a woman. And he's very devoted, very dedicated to uh, catching her, as it were, to, to be coming together with her. Um, but he knows that in order to win this girl, it's going to take money, right, and time and patience. It's going to take effort. He's got to be devoted to this task. But he says he knows that it's real because of the feelings that he feels. And his mind is set on her. This is the kind of thing that is being described here about the mind being set on. A mind that is set on things of the flesh is a mind that is dedicated to, devoted to pursuing the things of the flesh. A mind, meanwhile, that is set on the things of the spirit is a mind that is devoted to, willing to make sacrifices for, committed to the task of the, pursuing the things of the spirit. So these are the two different mindsets or ways of thinking. And verse 6 continues to further describe these mindsets. It describes their results. So you've got two different mindsets. We'll go back. You have two different kinds of existence, right? Flesh and spirit. And two different mindsets. Those that are on the things of the flesh and those that are on the things of the spirit. And now we see two different results in verse 6. To be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
unsurprisingly, pursuing the flesh ends in death. The flesh itself is dead in sin, and the end of it is death. Now, death, as we've seen several times in the book of Romans, refers to all spiritual and temporal miseries. This includes your physical death and eternal death or condemnation and everything in between, all the miseries of being sinful. The flesh is set on those things. It pursues them. It's devoted to them. It, it goes after them. It, it has an inclination towards them. It wants them. It, it is focused on them and devoted to them. It pursues death and finds it. The flesh is kind of like Ashahel, who uh, ran after Abner until Abner put the butt of his spear through him. Right? He ran, he ran, he ran, and he was pursuing death. And that is what the flesh is like. It's running, 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 pursuing death. It's following after death. It's following after sinful things, which lead to death. And finally, death catches it. The mind of the spirit, on the other hand, results in life and peace. You see that at the end of verse 6. Life refers to the fullness of life. Everlasting life, life with God, life to the full, the abundant life which the Lord Jesus promised. It is the exact opposite of, of the death that is promised for sin. Peace refers to that peace with God that we read about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord means that there is no longer enmity between the individual and God. It means that God forgives his sins and God is no longer his enemy. But with that, what we'll call the objective peace, the objective fact that God, having been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, no longer looks upon the his people with wrath, but rather looks upon them with the favor of looking upon his beloved son, along with that objective peace comes a subjective peace. Not having to be guilty before God. Knowing that your sins are forgiven. Knowing that God loves you. Knowing that you are God's child. This is the subjective peace that follows from the objective peace. God is your friend and not your enemy. Now, those who are according to the Spirit, then, are those who, having been justified by faith, have peace with God, just as those who are according to the flesh are those who are still condemned, still dead in their sins. When we come to verses 7 and 8, we begin to see an explanation of why the carnal mind, the the fleshly mind results in death. As we saw before, it's obvious, right? It's, it's pursuing fleshly things, which are sin, and those always lead to death. But here's an even fuller explanation. Number one, it results in death because of enmity against God, hostility towards God. Contrast this, by the way, with the peace that the believer has with God. And the enmity here is not enmity, first of all, from God to the sinner, but from the sinner to God. The sinner himself is hostile against God. Now, there is a, a sense in which God hates back those who hate him. 
And there is enmity then between God and this sinner. But the enmity here is that this individual, those who are after the flesh, in their own mind, there is enmity or hostility towards God. God says in Proverbs 8.36, All those who hate me love death. Do you see, hatred towards God cannot but end in your own destruction. It is not safe or right for man to hate his creator. God has given man no reason to hate him. But to hate God means that you love death. That is to say, you are pursuing death. That's what you you want. That is what you will gain. There's a second reason, and that is rebellion. Paul says the carnal mind is not subject to to the law of God. The flesh will not submit to the law of God. And as we've read before in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And we know that sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore, it cannot but be the case that those who will not subject themselves to the law of God are subject to death. In addition to the enmity and the rebellion... We see here an inability to obey the law of God. It is not subject, the carnal mind, Paul says, is not subject to the law, nor can it be. It's not even able. This is what we call inability. Man, in his state of sin, does not have the ability to obey God's law from faith. Now, he can outwardly obey some portions of the law, and he can, he can put a show of obeying the law, and he can even obey certain things, such as the law that's written on his heart. But he cannot obey the law in a way that honors God and pleases him. He does not have, as his goal in the law of God, God's glory. Therefore, he cannot obey the law in a way that is pleasing to God. Earlier, Paul said that the law is spiritual, And the reason why the fleshly mind can't obey it is because it is fleshly. It must first be be renewed and made spiritual in order to be able to obey the law. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to, to mention here, sometimes people talk about man's free will. And there is a sense in which, of course, yes, man has a will and it is free, but there's also a sense we must understand that man in the state of sin, right, when he's according to the flesh, his will is in bondage to sin. He does not desire the things of God. He does not want to please God. He does not want to obey God's law. He does not want to do anything on the side of God, nor can he. He is captive to sin, in bondage to sin. His will itself is in bondage to sin. And he does not by himself have the ability to get out of that. Related to that, then, is a fourth thing, and that's an inability to please God. Those who are, according to the flesh, cannot please God. Now this, by the way, is the whole purpose of mankind, to please God. That is why man exists, and that is the highest end that man can pursue. And in fact, that is the happiest that a man can be, is when he is pleasing to God. 
but those who are in the flesh cannot do it. Not only, not only will not, but read this, cannot. It's not possible for those in the flesh to please God. In Psalm 5, 4, we read that God has no pleasure in wickedness, and neither shall evil dwell with him. But those who are in the flesh have only evil to offer. They, they have no righteousness. They have nothing in them to commend them to God. They are, by nature, objects of wrath. What's more, being in the flesh means that they are not believers in Jesus Christ. That means they do not have a savior. That means they do not have forgiveness of their sins. That means that they do not have righteousness. That means that the enmity that's in their mind against God is now returned by God in the form of wrath against them. Consider just for a moment the miserable condition of those who are in the flesh. They are dead even while they live. What prospects do they have? Naturally speaking, none. Naturally speaking, none. They have a few short years, a few short years filled with trouble to pursue their fleshly pleasures by which they are rushing headlong into death. And after that death, they will stand before God and be judged for their sins. That is the prospect of those who are in the flesh. Now, having seen the contrast between those who are in the flesh or of the flesh and those who are of the spirit and the condemnation that is awaiting those who are of the flesh, let's consider these words of comfort for you, dear Christian, beginning in verse 9. But you, Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. There are a number of things that we can consider here, but the first thing is notice what the Apostle says. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, there's a sense in which, when we saw it before, Paul said that he has a fleshly body. Right? We, and we, too, have fleshly bodies. But it's not the same thing here. To have flesh... It's not the same thing to be in the flesh in this instance. In right here means to be under the control of, under the rule and reign of, right? It's the same as walking according to the flesh or being according to the flesh. It is those who are under the dominion and control of the sinful nature. But he says to the Christian, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And if the Spirit of God, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But he continues now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, that is to say, not God's. I want you to notice here in verse 9, we have the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. And all three of these are used interchangeably. You see, the Spirit and the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are all three ways of speaking of God the Holy Spirit. He is called the Spirit of God because he is God and, and he is Spirit. 
he is called the Spirit of Christ because he is, the, he is how Christ is communicated to you, right? He is the one, remember Jesus said, I, I will ask my Father and he will send another comforter and he will teach you all things. The Spirit of God, the God the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ because it is by him that you have Christ himself. You have Jesus Christ himself and all of his benefits communicated to you by God the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see here in verses 9 through 11 three things that God is doing for those who are according to the Spirit. And the first is indwelling. Indwelling. We see this in verse 9. So we saw that if indeed the Spirit dwells in you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This is interesting. There's a, there's a, a relationship going on here. If you are in the Spirit, the Spirit is in you. If, if the Spirit is in you, you are in the Spirit. There is a warning that we'll pick up a, a little bit later, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Some Christians ha have taught that um, you first believe in Jesus, and then later you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Apostle Paul teaches us here that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not his. Do you see that? If, if the Spirit is not dwelling in you, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And so the promise or the comfort to the believer is that God himself dwells within you, even as you are said to dwell in him. And this is something that we can so easily overlook, but consider what was so magnificent about the tabernacle. God dwelt in there. Or the temple, God dwelt in there. What was so magnificent about Israel and their glory? That God dwelt with them. What is so magnificent about heaven? That's where God lives. Dear Christian, Paul is saying that you are a dwelling place of God Almighty. And as we will see, it's actually not just God the Holy Spirit, but the entire Trinity. Do you see in these verses, okay, so we have uh, the Spirit of God who dwells in you and, and the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10 it says, Christ is in you. And then look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who is it, the one, who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? Well, Paul told us earlier in Romans it was God the Father. So we have the Spirit of God the Father is in us, and Christ is in us, and the Holy Spirit is in us. Do you see how all three persons of the Trinity are working to accomplish your salvation? So the first word of comfort is the indwelling of God. Those who are according to the Spirit have God dwelling in them even as they dwell in God. Secondly, God is renovating you. God is dwelling in you, but he is not idle. Rather, he is working. In verse 10, we read that the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is what we call a concession. In other words, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is is life because of righteousness. Now the Spirit here again refers to God the Holy Spirit but he's saying this, although you live in a body 
that has been ruined by sin. There are still remnants of sin in it. You, you were once subjected to the curse. You were once fallen. Although you live in a body that is dead because of sin, the Spirit of God is making you alive and working righteousness in you. This is God renovating you. This is like... Um, you, you ever see those home improvement shows where they, they go in and, and rent, remodel a house? And they have to go in and sometimes, you know, tear apart the walls and tear up the floor. And, and they always find additional problems. Oh, no, there's, there's lead in the paint and, um, you know, wrong kind of plumbing. And you have the bad wiring. And, and so what do they need to do? They need to tear out all of those bad things and replace them with the right things. And that's the work of renovation that God the Holy Spirit is doing on you now, Christian. But it is going to continue the remainder of your earthly life. Right? There's, a, there's an aspect of uh, demolition that takes place in which God is, is removing the remnants of sin and the damage that sin has done. And sometimes we underestimate the severity of the damages that sin has done to us. And so it will cause our fleshly bodies to die. We will die. We have a brother right now, a brother in the Lord, Don Williams, who is nearing the end of his life. Now, I have talked to him, and I can tell you that his inner man is quite alive. But his outward man is perishing. And that is the way that all of us will go. Why? Well, because of sin. Right? The Lord told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. God was not lying. And mankind has been dying since then. You are dying. Your mortal flesh is dying. And if the Lord does not come back beforehand, you will die. But the Spirit, right? the Spirit is working life in you, renovating you bringing you back, recreating you, renewing you to what God's design is for you. Yes, your body is dead because of sin, but God is renovating you. And I need you to understand this. The worker, the workman in this is God. That's how you know it will be accomplished. It is God. He has the power to do it, and he is committed to the task. He will accomplish it. So you see that you have God indwelling in you and you have God renovating you. Now in verse 11, you see that God will resurrect you. This is a word of comfort to you who are according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In verse 11, we read, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Here are two guarantees of the resurrection for you. The first is, is the Spirit, the same Spirit who indwelt Christ and raised Christ dwells in you. And the second is that God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So even if your body should die, God will raise your, he will give life to your immortal body through that Holy Spirit who dwells in you 
and is working renovation in you. It's interesting. um, John Calvin, on this passage, thought that this giving, this, uh, let's see, in verse 11, um, he will give life to your mortal bodies. John Calvin took this as what we call vivification, right? And that's sort of what we just talked about, the Spirit's work of, of renovating you and his continual renewal and giving you life, um, even as he's putting to death sin. John Calvin didn't see this as, as referring to the final resurrection, the, the raising of the body from the dead. And, and Calvin is partly correct. This, this is an ongoing work of the Spirit, but this must, I think, refer to the final resurrection because of the phrase mortal bodies in verse 11. And I don't know how else we take mortal bodies being given life other than the resurrection. And so I think we shouldn't see this, though, as utterly a different work from vivification or, or, or God's remodeling or renovation of you. You should see the resurrection of your body as the completion of the work that God has started even now. So on those home improvement shows, right, as they're working on the houses and they have a problem, of course, and they're over budget and all these different things, right? But at the end, they always have something called the reveal, right? You got to get back from commercial to see the reveal. If you miss the reveal, you've missed everything, right? You've watched the whole thing and there's no payoff. Well, God has a reveal, right? God reveals the renovation of our bodies, and he does that in the resurrection of the dead. When he shows forth all of that work he has performed, the scriptures call it the revealing of the sons of God. And so God then, at the last day, will reveal that work that he has done in, who, in those that he dwells, And it will be completed with the raising of our bodies from the dust. So those are the words of comfort for you. Okay? God dwells in you. God is renovating you. God will resurrect you. There is one thing left we need to do, and I need you to do this. I can't do this for you. But you need to be certain that these words are for you. That you, if you find that you are according to the Spirit, let me assure you that you can go home this evening absolutely assured of all of these promises. But only on that condition can you be assured of that. Therefore, it is important that you need, you, you need to ask yourself, am I according to the Spirit or am I according to the flesh? Do you see that if you are according to the flesh and you are sitting here, these promises, as wonderful as they sound, will not benefit you? So these words of comfort, then you must, you must search yourself, and I can't do that for you. You must search yourself and see whether you be of the Spirit of God or of the flesh. How do we do that? Well, we know that those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what we read in verse 5. The things of the Spirit are those things that are pleasing to God. Do you set your mind to things that are pleasing to God, to the things of God? The word of God, the promises of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God. 
All of these things, do you, do you have a mindset that is directed towards those things? Now, please, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean exclusively and without any fault whatsoever. I mean in you, in your day-to-day life, as a pattern, is there a sincere desire for the things of God? Do you direct yourselves towards the things of God? Do you have in you any appetite for the things of the Spirit? If so, then you are according to the Spirit. We have some other ways of knowing. We saw that those who are according to the flesh have enmity towards God. Beloved, are you viewing God as your enemy? Search your heart. Is God your enemy? If God uh, were to come to you, do you find that you are opposed to him? Do you find hostility towards him? Do you resent him? Do you disagree with his right to tell you what to do? If, if God were to take upon himself human flesh and come to you, would you want to crucify him? Do you have enmity toward God? Now, again, I don't mean with perfection, but rather, do you, in your best moments, as a pattern... Do you consider God your friend and indeed your God? We saw that those who are according to the flesh do not submit themselves to the law of God. So here is a question. Do you submit yourself to the law of God? If you do, what does that say? You are not according to the flesh. Why not? Because those who are according to the flesh do not submit themselves to the law of God, nor can they. But do you, beloved, do you submit yourself to the law of God? Do you find yourself submitting to the law of God? And not only do you desire to do it, but you find in you a power working that enables you to do it. You can say, Jesus' burden is light. His his commandments are not burdensome. Yes, I fall short of them, but but they are good and right and true, and I, I long to do them. Is that you? Then you are according to the Spirit. Are you concerned with pleasing God? Does it hurt you when you fail to please God? When you know you've fallen short? When you know you have to repent? When you know that you have done what you ought not do? Do you desire and do you long for opportunities to be pleasing to God? Those who are according to the flesh cannot please God. But those who are according to the Spirit find nothing more delightful than pleasing God. If you desire to please God, if it's a concern to you, if you want to learn how to do it, and if you apply yourself to doing it, then you are not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That means that God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwell within you. It means that they are renovating you, and it means that they will complete that work And on the last day, they will raise up your mortal body. That's a promise, and you can be assured of it. God says so. Let us pray. Our blessed God, oh, let us be so sure. Let us, Lord, find the comfort of this assurance. Grant to us, Lord, the comfort. And Father, if you have not, we pray that you would pour out your spirit, 
that we, O oh Lord, above all else tonight, we would go home assured that we are those who are according to your spirit, that we really do have faith in Jesus Christ, that our sins really have been forgiven, that we really are counted righteous in him, that you really do dwell in us and that you really are renovating us and that you will not leave us in the grave, but that you will call us out of the grave to be with you forever. Help us, O oh God, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.